I know the right thing to say at this point is Happy Mother's Day, and um, we do have a Mother's Day message about Jezebel. Um, we've been away from our study of Second Kings, I guess, for a month now, and uh, part of that, the first two weeks of that was Palm Sunday and Easter, and of course I'd like to focus on the cross and the resurrection at that time, and then we've heard from uh, Pastor Nate Meeks and uh, our friend Luke Hatfield the past two weeks, and I remember when I was doing some uh, sermon planning back a month or so ago, I was kind of plotting out, you know, where will I be and I realized that the next passage that we're talking about in Second Kings, chapters uh, eight, uh, 9 and 10, are the bloodiest passages in all of Second Kings on Mother's Day. So we're not avoiding that completely, but we are going to focus on one particular woman who dies in that uh, section, and that is Jezebel really one of the most horrible women you could ever run into. And then we will contrast her with a godly mom from some centuries before her, the woman Naomi from the book of Ruth. I guess we do learn from both good and bad examples, and so that's, that's what we do today. And really to understand Jezebel's violent death that will uh, describe a, a little bit this morning. To understand that, we really have to go back to see her full sad story in First Kings. She is an example of that biblical principles of reaping what you sow, and in a bad way. So, First Kings sixteen, starting in verse thirty. Ahab, he was the king of Israel, the northern section of the land. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, he had been the standard of evil so far, but he also did this. He married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. And it goes on to describe just how evil it was. First of all, Ahab in himself was evil, and the only way to make that worse was to marry this woman Jezebel from the pagan country of Sidon. Um, Worshiping Baal had been a plague, really, spiritually, for the nation of Israel for quite a few centuries already. Long been a temptation. Ahab, however, by marrying Jezebel, brought the worship of Baal into the palace. Now it was you know, part of the governing, influencing part of the nation of Israel, that they would be worshiping this pagan god, Baal. Why was Baal worship so awful? To simplify it, you could simplify it in one word. Money. Money. The problem with Baal is that he was thought by the culture to control the weather. He was called the rider of the clouds. 
it was the Hebrew way or the, the ancient way of saying, he's the rainmaker. And this is an agrarian society. Everything depended on those farmers raising the crops that supported the entire economy. And whether the nation would be, able, be economically successful all depended upon enough rain. Growing up in Kansas on a farm, I kind of understand, yeah, the rain is, is what's driving the economy. And so the appeal of Baal worship was not as, as they looked at these idols saying, oh, this is, this is really attractive to, to, to worship this, this idol of a skinny-looking guy or a cow or sometimes a guy with a cow's head and horns. If you want to Google the images, go ahead. It's kind of scary. I don't, it's not because they wanted to worship ugly things. It's that this, they had this sense that somehow this God, little g, was responsible for their financial success. And if, this, if he was a superior spirit that somehow would put food on the table and run the economy, you better worship him. You see, Satan, wherever he's working, is, is, is not concerned about what it is we worship, but that we don't worship God. And uh, when, when we know that idols, if they were just a thing, they're, they're a piece of wood, they're a piece of metal, and, and, and idols are nothing. And the prophets in the Old Testament would say that they're just wood and steel. But somehow the demons are able to make someone driven by fear do horrible things and worship something other than God. Now, Satan, in our economy, we go, well, it's, you know, it's not about idols. We don't have idols. And yet we have to realize that he is hard at work among us as well. Because, you see, the, the Israelites got into it too. And as they did, they didn't just go, okay, we're leaving the worship of God. We're going to worship the money God Baal. No, they added the money God bailed. We still worship the God who delivered us out of Egypt. But you know, it really can't hurt to also have some idols that might, I mean, maybe it does help the crops grow better. And so they would not worship God exclusively. And you really don't know, can you trust the God of Israel with rain? That's not really his thing, is it? Well, what does God do when Ahab, the king of Israel, marries the Baal worshiper, Jezebel, and now they build a temple for Baal, and everybody starts worshiping Baal? That's chapter 16, and we go to the very first verse of chapter 17, and we find that God is going to make a point to prove the worthlessness of Baal for financial gain. Now Elisha, Elijah rather, from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Do you see what's going on here? God sends his prophet Elijah to say, Who controls the rain? And he stops the rain. He stops the rain for three years. And God provides in chapter 17 for Elijah uh, in spite of the drought of that period of time. Chapter 18, after a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Who's in charge of stopping and starting the rain? God is. 
And that chapter then is when we have this incredible showdown at Mount Carmel, where Elijah calls, challenges the priests of Baal to call down fire on their altar, uh, and he then calls, they're unable to call down fire, and Elijah calls down fire upon this altar, proving that God of Israel is the true God. So God sends fire, and then right after that showdown, then God sends rain, because God said so through his prophet. So when the royal couple becomes Baal worshippers, when Jezebel came to the family and they become worshippers of the money god, it runs through the whole family. In fact, it would be hard to say that there is any one of the many sons and children of Ahab who did not worship Baal. Here's the warning. Just as Jezebel and the family begin to assume that money comes from Baal, can we as Christian families be guilty of letting money make our decisions? That kind of like, okay, we'll do that because that's more money. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You really got to choose. You cannot serve God and money. So we have to ask ourselves, honestly, does, or, or to what extent does money rule our family decisions? Uh, I, I've sometimes seen families make major moves of, of, of career or locations and never even thinking about what will that be like spiritually to live there and is there are are we going to connect to a church is is there going to be a spiritual cost to this move work is important work is a biblical ethic and yet sometimes do we like sacrifice huge chunks of time more than God would have us that sacrifices this. It sacrifices the, the times where we are with other believers grinding through truth and grinding through life. I, I have a lot of respect for I've been hearing of some families who, uh, you know, they want their teens to work, but the understanding is this is a part-time job. So you tell your employer you're not working on Wednesday night and you're not working on Sunday morning. Amazingly, employers respect that. You cannot serve both. Sometimes the, the issue might be that there isn't in a family a sense that everything comes from God. That we, really we don't have money. We are stewards of God's money. And there will be a sense in which a child will know just, just something about the sacrificial, generous mindset that we are giving gratefully because we see it as God's money or we keep all as we can because it's our money and we're all we got. Do we really trust the God of Israel, the God of creation, and the God who is Lord over all today? Jezebel impacted her husband in Israel Bales our money tree. She also took the direct approach 
not just content to promote her own God, she actually tried then to kill off God's prophets. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves. 1 Kings 18. After she had lost the contest on Mount Carmel and the Baal uh, priests had been killed, she begins killing God's prophet and she in fact tried to kill Elijah himself. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And Elijah runs and he ends up going underneath that broom tree. He's all depressed and uh, struggling. Satan doesn't play fair. Satan's an all-out enemy of the one true God. Um, the persecuted church around the world understands the Jezebel mindset of killing those who follow Christ. Uh, whether it's North Korea or Afghanistan or Iran or uh, many communist countries, they get it. In our country, Satan is just as active, but that doesn't work. So, 1 Peter 5, 8 says that he's still a lion seeking whom he may devour, referring to believers. He wants to destroy us, and so he'll use whatever else he can to uh, corrupt spiritual leaders, greed, lust, pride, distract Christians to fight over non-essentials, or skew our priorities materially or whatever it might take. Greed. Jezebel's most famous sin had everything to do with Ahab and Jezebel's greed. It was uh, Jezebel's murderous plot uh, against a man named Naboth. And I'm just going to summarize uh, the story of 1 Kings 21. So Ahab and Jezebel have this palace in uh, Samaria, the capital. And right next to Ahab's palace was this really, really fine vineyard. And Ahab was used to getting what he wanted, so Ahab wanted the vineyard. So he goes to Naboth and says, I'm going to buy your vineyard. And that sounds fair, right? He says, if I, don't, if I can't buy it, I, I'll even give you a different vineyard that's equal in value. It all sounds like a good business proposition. But you see, Naboth isn't free to sell it, and he says, no, I can't sell it. And here's why, because it is part of my spiritual inheritance, Ever since Joshua had divided the land that God gave them, you were to keep your land in your possession and your family. So I'm not, I'm not free to sell that to you, even though you are the king. So Ahab, Ahab gets really angry, and he goes home and acts really mature. He crawls into bed, curls up, and won't eat. He's kind of like, like the kid who didn't get the toy at Walmart, uh, pouting. And Jezebel is like the uh, indulgent mom who comes and sees him and says, what are you doing? Stop your pouting. I'll get the vineyard for you. So she proceeds to host a feast and invite Naboth. But she hires two, the Bible calls them scoundrels, false witnesses who stand up in this public event and say, Naboth has cursed God and the king. And so they hold a quick, corrupt courtroom uh, event, and they condemn him to death and stone him. Voila! Ahab takes the vineyard. Everybody's happy because Jezebel wins, right? Not quite. 
God sends Elijah the prophet to Ahab again and says this. Because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, he says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel. Because you have aroused my anger, probably by this Naboth murder, and have caused Israel to sin, probably referring to introducing Baal worship. Also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. So this is the verdict, and in fact, really what we study next week in all of chapters 8 and 9, or rather 9 and 10 of 2 Kings, is the fulfillment. But one specific one we need to understand today about Jezebel says dogs will devour her, right? Well, what God does after Ahab dies and his two sons, Ahaziah and Joram, have both died, we now have this widow, uh, evil widow Jezebel, in a palace. They had two palaces. This one's in Jezreel. And uh, God has anointed a king to replace Ahab and his descendants named Jehu. And Jehu is the one who carries out God's judgments. And he's riding his chariot into Jezreel. And Jezebel is in the second story of the, of the Jezreel palace. And she's painted up her face. I don't know why, but she's got this vanity thing going, even though she knows she's probably going to die. Jehu rides his chariot up, and he tells the two attendants, two or three attendants that uh, are by uh, her up in that second story window throw her down and they do and dogs eat her body so that there's nothing left to bury aren't you glad you came on Mother's Day <laughs> she reaped what she sowed if it's possible to get more evil it would be her daughter, Athaliah. Ahab and Jezebel have a daughter named Athaliah. And while Jezebel had corrupted Israel by marrying Ahab, Israel being the northern kingdom, they have a daughter, Athaliah, who marries the king of Judah, one of the descendants of King David. And so now they are married and she brings this evil with her into really infecting the line of Judah as well. So here's Jezebel's legacy. Her marriage, first of all, he, King Joram of Judah, followed the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab, Athaliah, Jezebel's daughter. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So now this Athaliah is married to the Judah side of things and evil proliferates. What about her motherhood? Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem one year. His mother's name was Athaliah. Got the next generation. He followed the ways of the house of Ahab and did evil in the eyes of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done. Why? For he was related by marriage to Ahab's family. That's his mom, Athaliah. But then Ahaziah died as well. 
And he only reigned that uh, year. And when he dies, Athaliah says, ah, there's a leadership vacuum in Judah now. I could be queen. Don't know how old she is by now. Her, Her son's dead. But she wants this power so badly. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family. So she thinks through everybody on the Judah side of the line, and every nephew, every grandnephew, and get this, her grandsons. She murders them. Jezebel, Athaliah, and we'll, when we study that portion, we'll see Athaliah as well. Reaps what she sows. I I knew this would be a good Mother's Day message when I first read through this. You know, if anything, if you have any negative thoughts about your mom today at all, she doesn't look so bad, does she? You could maybe write in your card, thank you for not being as bad as Jezebel. No, kidding, Dare we learn something small but important, though? Because we do sometimes see our sins crop up in our next generation, right? Now, please stop at that and don't beat yourself up. Just know that every mom and probably every dad has had that fear that I've certainly ruined my kids many times over, right? In fact, kids are spiritually very resilient, when they have a mom or a dad who simply comes back to the relationship with God day after challenging day. Yeah, they yelled. Yeah, they did this. They regret this. Everybody, every parent in here has regrets. But we are those who believe in the long view of what God is doing. And we can thank God for his grace. But still, Whatever we see in our lives, we take seriously to deal with if we need to. I find Galatians 6 about reaping and sowing and reaping to be very encouraging. It, It has both a warning, but it has a huge encouragement in it as well. So the first half is about Jezebel, okay? Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps or a woman reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, that's our sinful nature, From the flesh will reap destruction. But here's this. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And I think he's talking not about earning eternal life, but things that last forever that will matter in heaven. Sow to the Spirit. Keep coming back to the fact the Holy Spirit of God lives within you. And keep sowing in that direction. So let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So yes, we've seen the horrific sins of Jezebel and daughter Athaliah. But what I see in this room today is a lot of moms who have not grown weary of doing good and have come back day by day by day to sow to the Spirit.
to realize I cannot do this unless I keep coming back to my walk with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can be assured that at some point, at least your children are going to have to look back and say, I have seen God at work in mom, in dad, that they did not grow weary. They did not spiritually give up. Turns me to Ruth chapter 1. It's time to clean our minds out a little bit, right? Page 210. Today you get two sermons for the price of one. This is about Naomi, the great-great-grandmother of King David, actually. It took place when there were judges. That's before there were kings in Israel. So it's somewhere around 1200 B.C., whereas uh, Jezebel and company are more around 800 B.C. The book is called Ruth. It really could have been called Naomi. Ruth is the daughter-in-law in the story. Uh, Naomi is the mother-in-law in the story. It's only four brief chapters. Fascinating story. We want to, we're going to summarize it. Uh, but, it, I mean, if you had 30 minutes, I got a feeling you could read through this uh, on your own and just uh, appreciate what it's saying. But whereas Jezebel, this pagan wife of King Ahab, reaped what she sowed, destruction, we find that Naomi, this godly widow, is blessed by God even through the hardest of times. And <clears throat> chapter 1 tells how godly Naomi and her husband Elimelech have two sons. And it's during a time of famine in Judah. Uh, they live near Bethlehem. And uh, during that famine, they decide the best thing for their family's survival is actually to move uh, to the neighboring country of Moab. They had friendly uh, relations with Moab at this time, I guess. And in fact, the Moabites were somewhat related to the Jewish people as descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot. I'm sure they didn't intend to live in Moab forever because, <clears throat> after all, we'll see, they had some land uh, back in, in the nation of Judah, in the area of Judah. But while they are there, uh, their sons marry Moabite wives. And while they are where, while they are there, tragically, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies, and both sons, adult sons, die. And now you've got Naomi there with two Moabite daughters-in-law, and Naomi knows what she has to do. She has to go back home. And so this point, at this point later in her life, she is going to make the trip back to, to Bethlehem. She's got a little piece of land there, evidently. And so she says goodbye to her daughters-in-law. But we pick it up in chapter 1, verse 16, where we find out that one of those daughters-in-law said, Nope, I'm not staying here. I'm going with you. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And this is important. Your God will be my God. I don't know if Naomi even realized it. I don't know if she realized the impact that she had on her daughters-in-law that they said, you know, I got the Moabite gods, and then I got Naomi in my life. I want to follow her God. And this is during a time of deep grief 
for Naomi. This is not a stellar moment for her. In fact, even as they come back, verses 19 19 and 20 and so forth, uh, Naomi doesn't seem to be in a real good place spiritually. She gets back to to, to Bethlehem, verse 20 says, um, well, the town is saying, hey, can this be Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi. The word Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me, and the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. This is our example of godliness? No, this is an example of authenticity. This is a woman who's lost her husband. She's lost both her sons. And she is at a spiritually normal, struggling part of her life. She's had huge losses. And yet, Ruth said, I want to follow your God. She doubted God. She blamed God. You know, sometimes I think we assume as parents that we have to have our life all put together to impact, to influence our children well spiritually when maybe we don't realize that they need to see our faith in a much more authentic, raw way knowing that we do struggle. Knowing that we, 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 we don't understand God many times. She's trying to process. She's got to be an emotional wreck as she processes these losses in her life. And yet Ruth says, I want your God. But as we come to the end of chapter 1, there's actually a first little hint of hope. Now Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now, just to understand in Scripture, you know, when you have themes like famine and death, chapter 1, you're waiting for this. The theme of harvest. Harvest is, is hope. Hope and, as we're going to discover, romance. Chapters 2 and 3 are the stories of two widows who see the grace of God beginning to peek through the most horrible storms you can imagine. So uh, pick it up, chapter 2, verse 2. Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. I just follow the reapers and if they let me, I'll pick up what they accidentally dropped. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Remember Elimelech? That's Naomi's husband, deceased husband. So Naomi's a hard worker, and she offers to do what poor people would do, which is during harvest, just go and scavenge through the fields and see if you can find some of the grain that they've dropped. Just pick it up, take it home, thresh it out, and get a few more meals. And so she does that, and she happens to find herself, I love the way the scripture says, happens to find herself in the field of Boaz, who's related to Naomi. That was really lucky, wasn't it? Or do you begin to see the sovereign goodness of God. Verse 5. Boaz, that's the owner, asked the foreman of his har- harvesters, whose young woman is that? 
And the foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. Somehow Ruth stood out. I think us men know what's going on. She's young, pretty, and single, and he's single too. God's, uh, God's plan is at work. I love just reading what Boaz does to show Ruth favor. Uh, here's, here's the bullet points. First he tells Ruth, hey Ruth, uh, don't go to any other fields to pick up grain, okay? Just, I'll provide for you here. And uh, I've talked to my men and told them don't touch you or dare harass you. Protection. And uh, by the way, if you need some water, i got some water over here. Help yourself to my water. And then he says, could you join me for lunch? It's getting pretty obvious, isn't it? Here, here's some of my roasted grain. And then uh, this is the best one. He goes to his workers and says, uh, you know, when you're working in front of Ruth, drop a lot. <laughs> Be a little sloppy. And so uh, preferential treatment. So he's fallen hard for her, I know. And, and Ruth gets back home and Naomi says, you got to be kidding. You got, how much grain did you come home with? Something is going on. And, and she says, hey, hey mom, mother-in-law, by the way, I was working in Boaz's field. Boaz. Look at verse 20. This, this is Naomi with, 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 with developing her confidence in God after all the losses she's occurred. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He, referring to the Lord, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and in fact to the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. We'll explain that later. But I love to see how Naomi is starting to process that horrible things that happen does not impugn the nature of God. He's still good. And that there's some kind of a plan in this that God is going to show his grace and his kindness. Because in chapter 1, all she could see is that God was the source of her sorrow. Now she begins to see that God is the source of her joy. By the way, if we've caught the contrast this morning, Ahab, Jezebel, Incorporated were so greedy that they had to steal and kill an innocent man because they wanted one more vineyard. But here you've got Naomi and Ruth who... They worked hard, they trusted God through the hard times, and they are the ones who begin to see the goodness of God show through. And God's about to do something very special. You know, we, we as parents often uh, fret and worry about providing for our family because we really do care so much. And in contrast to the Ahab-Jezebel passage, that Jesus, we saw what Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, you cannot serve both God and money. Just like about two breaths later, here's what Jesus said. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans, that's what pagans do. Pagans worry. Pagans run after all these things. Isn't that day Ahab and Jezebel? And your heavenly father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. There's an alternative to worry. 
changing masters. Don't run after the things of the world. I mean, Ahab also was known for his ivory palace. He had it all. And still stole Naboth's vineyard. And don't do that. I think as we model as parents, one of the most important things that we can model as, as parents is our trust in God about financial things. And the only way we will overcome the temptation of making money our master is when our father is truly our master. And he's a father who understands mortgages, car payments, appliance problems, car repairs, driver's ed fees, whatever it might be. And he knows that we like to bless our family with a vacation or whatever it might be, and we can trust him. So Naomi and Ruth are learning how God provides. And he's going to use this man, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Uh, Chapters 3 and 4 kind of describe a fast-tracked courtship of these two, Boaz and Ruth. They're two probably a bit older adults, both single. Naomi, the mother-in-law, I don't know, this is a great example, but she initiates things. She gets this, this to work. She knows that Boaz is a close relative, and Naomi has figured out that this preferential treatment has a romantic basis. And so she actually instructs Ruth, kind of countercultural, but instructs Ruth to go make the first move. She says, go at night, because Boaz is sleeping at the threshing floor, with his workers, and go in the middle of the night and lay down by his feet. Go to chapter 3, verse 8. So that's what she does. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. This is a men's only threshing floor of the day, right? Who are you, he asks. I'm your servant, Ruth. She said, spread the corner of your garment, the garment was as a blanket, over me, since you are my kinsman redeemer. Now, in our day, we read that and think, well, that sounds like a romantic proposition. It wasn't. It might seem like a preview to a marriage where one spouse hogs the blanket during the night, too. It could be. It's not that either. <laughs> this was a cultural request that Ruth was asking Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer. In short, here's the situation. Remember we said that uh, Elimelech and Naomi had some land. We see that in, in verse uh, 3 of chapter 4. But Naomi was in such a place of destitute, that destitute place that she realized she needed to sell her land to, to, just to survive. Naomi, who has come back from Moab, verse 3, is selling the piece of her land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. It belonged to Elimelech. Now, the same thing has taken place that, Neom, that Naboth experienced. He said, I can't sell my land. It's family land. But now we find Naomi selling land. Why is she selling land? She has to out of need. But if you had to do that, not just anybody could buy that land because it needed to stay in the family. So the Jews had rules about that, that someone in the family, not open bidding, but the closest relatives would get the first opportunity to buy this land. 
And there was an unnamed man in town who was the next in line. And he goes, yeah, I want to farm some more land. But you see, there's a catch. If he buys the land, he has to also take care of the widow. And in fact, the land will kind of have like an asterisk on it. And it's not really his land. It's really the deceased man's land still. He's farming it and gets to benefit from it. But he's got to take... And so Boaz points that out to him and says, by the way, if you do take this then, because he's the, the guy's the first in line, you're responsible for Ruth, and it's not really your land. He says, I'm out. I don't want to take care of, of a woman, and I don't want to have a land that's not really mine. And so Boaz is next in line, and he said, I do. <laughs> and he said, I do. And she said, I do. And they got married, and they had a baby. That's the short version Remember Jezebel's end of life? She lived miserable and hated. She was thrown down to die. Dogs ate her. And her legacy was an even more evil daughter. She reaped what she sowed, destruction. What did Naomi, simple, poor, grieving, Naomi, who stuck with God, what did she reap? Let's pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women of the town said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, that's high praise, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. Now there's a grandma for you, right? And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. We might say, well, that's not technically a son. I mean, it's not even technically her grandson. It's your daughter-in-law's son with this other guy who's a relative. No. Because the way the Jews saw it, this is the line of Naomi and Elimelech. And so You've got a son. And she enjoyed him as a son, a grandson. And the cherry on top is that this little baby would be King David's grandfather. So Jezebel never sought God. The epitome of sowing evil, reaping destruction. Naomi, not perfect either. Deeply grieved. But she hung on to God with her whole heart, and God saw her heart, and God saw her hurt, and God blessed her for seeking him first, because he is so good. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Don't grow weary in doing good. In due time, you will reap harvest if you don't give up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are reminded by these real people that uh, struggle has been 
common through the generations and centuries. The temptations have been the same. Our idols look different. But you know our hearts and you know that we always have forks in the road of what we're going to pursue. I thank you for this room full of families that uh, are going day by difficult day sometimes uh, choosing to walk with you, uh, face the next uh, challenge, obstacle, or loss, or the next uh, blessing. I pray that we would not be weary in doing well, that you would transform our hearts and that somehow you will bear fruit uh, that, uh, that is harvested maybe sometime many, many years later that will uh, really make a difference for eternity. We entrust ourselves and our families to you in Jesus' name. Amen.